Um, yeah, I, I think this is such an important topic because I don't know if you, if you were here last night, but I was sharing that there was a time in my life where everything was just falling apart. And so what I did was I, I was looking for absolute certainty. I was looking for something that I could, I could completely trust and have confidence in. And so a lot of what I'm talking about today kind of shares that journey of um, my, my desire for absolute concrete certainty in everything. And that's very much fueled my, my academic pursuits. So I'm currently doing my, my doctorate um, in this, which again, it doesn't really mean very much. It just means I drink a lot of coffee in Birmingham. But um, I do love this. And it's such an important topic, just thinking about what is truth today. I just love it. Thank you. Great. I'll hand over to you now, Chris. Thanks, Sam. Um, Great, welcome. It's so good to see you all um, here today. What we're going to be looking at is the question of, is certainty possible in 2018? You know, after all, is it even possible to know something truly? You know, surely there is just such a vast array of often contradictory and competing claims to knowledge that to sift through each and every one of them, to determine and to discern what truth, that which corresponds to reality, is, is beyond our time and abilities. You know, we can't possibly know what truth is 100% of the time. So what is the point in even trying? You know, we've looked to the experts, we've looked to the media and to other influential voices, and they've failed us quite spectacularly, haven't they? You know, who can we trust? What is real? How do we know? And these questions are deeply personal. You know, we can't compartmentalize truth. This shapes us as individuals, and what we need is a robust, weighty, and good way of knowing that is no less than factual, but it's so much more. Something which accounts for coming to know and our ongoing relationship with knowledge. And that is what I'd like to suggest today, that knowledge, whatever that means, we'll get to it, is relational. Truth is relational. We don't need to confine truth to the realm of the philosophers, though that's, I think, a really great place to start. Instead, what I hope I can start to share is a real healthy epistemology, a way of knowing, which affects all areas of life and being. But before we do that, let's look at what post-truth is and the effect that it has on knowledge today. I'm sure we can all remember, um, not so long ago, these particular slogans that were um, put up on a bus campaign. Uh, let's give our NHS the 350 million the EU takes each week. But then, you know, once the numbers had been crunched and a more accurate um, estimation was produced, Raj and Duncan Smith were very quick to deny this claim. Now, we won't go into the political details, but what statements such as this reveal is the most frustrating question. How can we recognize when someone is telling us the truth? How do we know that what someone says to us is trustworthy? People promise much, and they deliver little, don't they? They spin, they weave, and they deceive for personal advancement and gain. And many people, and most likely a fair few of us included here today, feel lied to, we feel let down, betrayed. And if we or other fellow citizens voted leave purely on faulty information on such a significant issue, how can we know that what we hear in the future will provide an accurate representation of reality? When Michael Gove was challenged uh, by a Sky News reporter to name a single independent economic authority that thought Brexit was a good idea, he made this expert comment. I don't know if you remember it. He said, I think people in this country have had enough of experts. And this statement is also felt on the other side of the pond as well, isn't it? 
you know, I just, I always love it when the American elections roll around each year. You know, I usually try and get the good food in, get the friends around, get the wine out. And uh, I know it's a little bit sad, I know. And I uh, love to watch the results coming in. Um, we were in for a little bit of a shock, weren't we? You know, I wonder how many of us who were watching it live or perhaps awoke the next morning to find a notification on our phones that Donald Trump is president-elect. You know, such moments, you know, I'm sure we'll remember for a very long time to come. You know, and as I was watching each state declare and the world receive the news that Trump had received 70% needed to win, one of the British news reporters said live on TV, I don't know how we got this so wrong. Why didn't we pick this up? Now, the majority of people who, who voted for Trump were fed up with Washington. Washington doesn't work, they said. And they wanted an outsider, someone untainted by it. And as Trump's campaign, and indeed his presidency since, has constantly changed, as more and more untrue facts were made, and generally they're called lies, aren't they? Words increasingly bore very little relation to reality. If the sole purpose of the media is to expose lies and discern between fact and fiction, they couldn't do it. Post-truth, as we've seen in the election and since, it erodes knowledge. Um, here are some of the more perceptive tweets on uh, Twitter that I found on Post-Truth uh, a little while ago. Um, everything is wrong about absolutely everything. Hashtag Post-Truth. Politicians have failed us. Presidents have failed us. The liberal media has failed us. And these are the events of just the past year or so. You know, this isn't limited to the political sphere, is it? You know, how about people like Jimmy Savile? or the football coach, Barry Bennell, or instances of awful clerical abuse. People who were and are in positions of power and responsibility whom we believe, and again, you know, it turns out that once more, they've been deceiving us to such abhorrent effect. How about the financial crisis? You know, the Western world put its hopes on the economists, and the economists let us down. And now as technology advances, is cyberspace really secure? You know, what happened to all the information that has been repeatedly hacked and withdrawn from Yahoo accounts, banks, and Tesco? That is what it looks like to live in our post-truth society today, isn't it? Who can we trust? You know, sadly, this isn't a new phenomenon. Uh, in the 1970s, there are de-education classes um, on this very topic. And if you have a spare three hours, I really recommend having a look at Adam Curtis's documentary on hypernormalization. And that just charts the, the post-truth history. Now, perhaps you saw this article in The Guardian um, a year or so ago. The word post-truth has been used so often in the wake of the US uh, election and the EU referendum that the Oxford English Dictionary declared post-truth to be its international word of the year in 2016. And most recently, we've seen you know, words like Antifa, fake news, etc., used quite recently, haven't we? And freely. And now, I've described the climate of our post-truth society, but I think it's also helpful just to sum up um, the situations with a clear definition of what post-truth is before we go further. Now, post-truth is an adjective. Uh, it is relating to or denoting circumstances in which objective facts are less influential in shaping public opinion and appeals to emotion and personal belief. So really, you know, it's really no wonder that when facts no longer influence, and perhaps they never purely should have done in the first place, that appeals to emotion and personal belief do. Washington doesn't work. Our country has had enough of experts. 
We know that they are lying, and we don't care. And that is the effect post-truth has on knowledge. We expect people to lie, and we probably know that they are, but we don't care. Such a disintegration of truth leads to a disintegration of trust. Jonathan Haidt, uh, he's a social psychologist. He was named one of the 65 world thinkers of 2013. He recognized this in his studies a little while ago. In 2006, he released this awesome book called The Happiness Hypothesis. And he starts uh, by looking at the different ways in which the self has been divided. And he zooms in on the distinction between conscious, reasoned processes and the automatic, implicit, emotional processes. And what he does is he uses the metaphor, I will come up, of a little rider, there we go, on the back of a massive elephant in which the conscious, rational mind is the rider and the unconscious, emotional mind is the elephant. Now, the problem is, is that the rider's control isn't exactly determinative. The rider is so small compared to the elephant. So any time there is a disagreement between the two, the rider will always lose. The elephant will always overpower the rider. Now, you've probably experienced this if you've committed to getting fit, but instead you've decided to opt for gentle hill climbing. Or if you've slept in, if you've overeaten, if you've made the mistake of calling your ex at midnight, you know, if you've abandoned your German or piano classes, or you've just refused to speak up in a seminar because you've been too afraid. The elephant is purely led by emotional and conscious instinct. It wants what it wants, and it wants it now. Uh, the elephant hungers for instant gratification, whereas the small rider has long-term goals in mind. So when there is a disagreement, the elephant is always going to win. That little stick the rider has in trying to prod the elephant into action isn't going to work. And I think this accurately describes the nature of our post-truth context. Now just have a look at this tweet. It's unacceptable to tell other people what to do. And um, here's a friend of mine, and actually, actually you do know him. He was here on Tuesday on the Science and God Talk, and tweeting in response, uh, ironically in response to the OED, he said, you know, these experts telling the rest of, the, telling the rest of us what the word of the year was. Post-truth, next, they'll be telling us that they write the dictionary. Where there's a disintegration of truth, when the rider doesn't know how to think, there's a disintegration of trust. The rider refuses to listen to the experts and vice versa. Instead, you know, the elephant just gets frustrated with the stalling rider and it goes on this kind of rampage, harnessing its energy and drive to pursue instant gratification of felt needs. Disintegration of truth leads to disintegration of trust. And I think truth and trust and people are linked very closely together. You know, we trust people who we think are truthful. You know, it's unsurprising then that when abuse of any kind happens, that we feel let down. You know, it's unsurprising that it leads to such abhorrent effects and awful acts. But it also leads us to distrust the people or the organizations and what they stand for, doesn't it? I'll come back to this later. Now, we've seen what post-truth is. Now, let's move on to considering questions of certainty, or instead, as I'd like to say, confidence. In a post-truth climate, then, it's no wonder that we regard certain truth claims with such a high level of suspicion, and rightly so. There's this old adage, isn't there, about um, you know, people who are the most wrong are the most certain, and uh, we can also say that the most certain, the more certain they are, the more dangerous that they actually become. 
And that statement, you know, statements like that just feed our elephants, don't they? You know, if certainty is associated with danger, then actually I want nothing to do with it. That's a fair point, isn't it? If someone thinks that the, the solution to the problem of so-called Islamic State or North Korea is to push the nuclear button, then I want nothing to do with that. And just as much as I and probably all of you here wouldn't endorse or support the confidence of so-called Islamic State's political agenda, such confident certainty on both sides, and yet certainty doesn't overcome or remove the prior certainty in this case. It just produces more danger. It's like Adam Curtis's other documentary, Bitter Lake. You know, the Americans were so certain that they went into Iraq thinking that they knew what was best, and then they tragically realized that they actually had no idea and didn't know how to sort it out. And people now see that there's a vacuum of meaning. So then how can we be confident about what we know when everyone seems to be pulled by their elephants all of the time? You know, is good confidence in what is true even possible? And before we get there, I think we need to ask a more basic initial question. And that is, how do we know? How do we go about the process of knowing anything? Or, um, in the words of one of my, my favorite musicians at Houston, how do I know if he really loves me? How do we know? Now, I'm just going to share one story of knowing before I present what I think is a fuller, better, more real, and ultimately good way of knowing. Now, there are lots of people throughout philosophical history that we could focus on, and there are many stories which explain how we know anything. But due to time, we're just going to look at one. And I think uh, this guy is usually the first one you know, that comes to mind when we think about epistemology or the study of how we know. And you probably guessed it, and it's Big Daddy Descartes. We've probably all heard the conclusion of this thought experiment, haven't we? You know, cogito ergo sum. I'm thinking, therefore I am. Now, Descartes is a rationalist and a foundationalist, meaning that in order to know what is real, we need to know how such a claim can be a justified true belief. Now, please do come and chat to me afterwards about what that is. It is really, like, really juicy, and I'd love to chat with you. Now, basically, Descartes said, in order to know anything with certainty, we have to start to doubt everything that we know. By doing this, we may be able to see if there is some belief that cannot be doubted. So he doubts, you know, he doubts for a very long time. If you go through his meditations, I highly recommend it. It's a highly tricky read if you've got time. Please do have a look at it. And ultimately, he lands on the famous conclusion I'm thinking, therefore I am. I can doubt the external world. I can doubt that I have a body. I can doubt that my reasoning abilities can be trusted. And there may be good reason to think that all of my other beliefs are false because they're being manipulated by an evil power. But there is one belief that he says we cannot be mistaken about, and that is the belief that we are thinking, or that we're doubting as we're doing this. Since we are thinking, there must be something that does the thinking, me. So that I is a thinking thing. Thinking proves that we exist. Now, critics have come up with a number of objections as to why this construction of knowing is problematic, and um, here is one of them. Descartes walks into a bar, and the bartender asks him if he wants a drink. Descartes says, I think not. And he disappears. And that's just one of them. Now, here's another reason why I think this is most problematic for him. Descartes claim that we should limit knowledge only to that about which we are absolutely certain is much too limited. You know, it makes perfect sense to say we know things without having to guarantee that what we know is based on indubitable foundations. 
Now, and it also pro throws up problems about belief, you know, in other minds, doesn't it? I know that I exist right now because I am thinking, but how do I know that you exist right now? And I'd also like to argue that not only is Descartes' view limited, but in light of that, it's also necessarily reductionistic. It limits reality, doesn't it? You know, it doesn't make any room for the elephant. We all have feelings, we all have longings, we all have desires. And these aren't accounted for as justified true beliefs in this schema. So even though Descartes' enterprise has been shown by and large to have failed, it remains a potent thought exercise, and it hasn't been disregarded by any means. In fact, Descartes' story goes on to pave the way for other stories in knowing reality, such as skepticism, the view that there cannot be any justified beliefs. And into that vast of competing theories of knowledge, we also find evidentialist approaches and purely scientific empirical approaches too. You know, all knowledge is based on experience derived from the senses. And then you get your oddballs like Kant as well, who are, who are a little bit of fun, but they have their own models and theories. Now, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying that evidence, reason, or science is a bad way of knowing. Because they aren't, are they? We would still be flat earthers if we didn't take evidence seriously. You know, we wouldn't value this discussion itself if we didn't value reason. And we wouldn't have penicillin if we disregarded science. Now, Pascal makes a very helpful comment on this. He wrote, we know the truth not only through our reason, but also through our heart. It is through the latter that we know first principles. And the reason which has nothing to do with it tries in vain to refute them. The skeptics have no other object than that, and they work at it to no purpose. We know that we are not dreaming, but however enabled we may be to prove it rationally, our inability proves nothing but the weakness of our reason, and not the uncertainty of our knowledge as they maintain. Our inability must therefore only serve to humble reason, which would be the judge of everything, but not to confute our certainty, as if reason were the only way we could learn. Now, I'm definitely not saying that science, reason, and evidence are bad ways of knowing. They just aren't the only way of knowing. And I'll come back to this in a moment. What I'd like to raise is the question, how can we even know that we can have confidence in these approaches? And to answer that, I think we need to understand how an atheist worldview speaks into this discussion. So let's have a look at one of its largest advocates, uh, Ricardo Dawkins. He wrote this. He wrote, the universe that we observe has precisely the properties we should expect if there is a bottom, no design, no purpose, no evil, no good, nothing but pitiless indifference. If this is true, then the atheistic worldview entails the view that there is no design and purpose. Now, if this is true to say that we are just the products of time plus chance plus matter, then how can I trust that my thoughts are geared towards truth? So, in other words, you know, it doesn't matter if one takes an empiricist account of knowing or a rationalist account of knowing. Because with atheism, the person cannot even trust their own faculties of perception, of memory, to give them, a, to know, to trust that they are giving them a true account of what is true. How can we know that unguided evolution without God forms true belief? Unguided evolution without God has to give a non-theistic evolutionary account that the origin of these faculties is aimed at forming true beliefs. Evolution only selects for survival and reproduction. It does not select for truth. Now, this is the argument that philosopher uh, Alvin Plantinga, who's an absolute babe, um, gives in his recent book, Where the Conflict Really Lies. And he writes, all that's required for survival and fitness is that the neurology cause adaptive behavior. This neurology also determines belief content, 
But whether or not that content is true makes no difference to fitness. David Talfit, uh, he's a guy at King's, he later added to this conversation by saying, no doubt, if naturalism, you know, that the belief that everything arises from natural causes and properties is true, then the belief-forming mechanisms in our brains would have to be ones which help us survive and reproduce. But why think that they should be aimed at truth? So if Dawkins is right, if at bottom there is no design, no purpose, no God, creating or providentially superintending the development of these faculties, then the atheist, according to Plantinga, has a hard time explaining why we should listen to them about science, reason, and evidence. Now again, please don't mishear me. I'm not saying um, that, a that those who hold to an atheist framework don't deserve to be listened to, because they do. And they make the most valuable contributions in all kinds of fields and areas of knowledge. But this is just the logical outworking of the atheist worldview which I don't think can account for the desire for truth, or even for truth itself. And the other reason why I think we, we, can't, we can have confidence in these approaches um, completely, as totalizing accounts of knowledge, is because they are necessarily limited. And for that reason, they're usually self-refuting. For example, you know, the scientists claim uh, that all I know is what I can see, test, and repeat, is itself self-refuting. The claim itself cannot fulfill its own criteria. Or, for example, you know, all I can know is that which is evident to the senses is not itself evident to the senses. We can't separate the rider from the elephant or vice versa. We need a way of knowing that accounts for both. What post-truth has shown us is that emotions matter. Emotions can be manipulated, but as Haidt has shown us, most of us are led by our elephants an awful lot of the time. So it's important that we are, as it were, emotional about the right things, so that our elephants pursue good, hearty things. Now, a lot could be said on this, but all I want to highlight is that emotion, the emotions, the realm of the heart, matter. And so what I think we need is not only something that can give ground, weight, and legs for our longings and our desires, but something that can satisfy our hunger for truth that corresponds to reality that we can be confident of and in. I'd like to suggest that we need both. We need both head and heart. And for the biblical writers, there has never been a disjunction between the two. What Jonathan Haidt proposed has been around for thousands of years in the biblical literature. What I'd like to do is to suggest a different way of knowing. Now, your rider may have fallen asleep. So, for a moment, what I'd love you to do is just to talk to the people on your table, and I'd just love you just to share one funny story of what has happened to you in this past week, okay? And I'm going to ask one of you to share it with us afterwards, not one of you, just one of you. Um, just turn to the people on your table, share your funniest story, and then just ask yourself very quickly these three questions of that story. When you told this story, were you arrogant? Were you mistaken? Were you scientific? Okay? Funniest story. Can't wait. Okay. Um, I hope that's given you a little bit of time to share one of your funniest stories. And would anyone be bold enough or brave enough, confident enough to be able to share that story uh, with us? So you, you, you had red lipstick on, in your jeans and you washed them and you now have got red lipstick everywhere. Yeah, that happened to me not long ago. It's really awkward that, isn't it? You just think, it is red lipstick, like seriously. Um, yeah, thank you for sharing. Now, now this story, and you may have had other stories um, as well. Now, we didn't know everything perfectly, so I don't know what kind of red lipstick it was that you, you put in, into your jeans. And perhaps we understood some of the stuff mistakenly. So I don't know what your washing machine looks like. It could be a combo washer-dryer. Who knows? 
But um, what we're still able to do is we're still able to feel that we can make some kind of truth claims, can't we? You know, these funny stories were truth claims in the expectation that our language could adequately, though not exhaustively, communicate it. You know, and were we arrogant, you know, to tell these stories? No, you know, a truth claim can be made arrogantly, that's for sure. But a truth claim is not inherently arrogant, even when it's made confidently. So finally, I think this uh, brings us to what I think is a better and more beautiful way of knowing. And that's something called subsidiary focal integration. Okay, now stay with me. Right, there's this babe. Her name is Esther Lightcat Meek. She is a philosopher in the States. And what she has done is that she's developed um, another philosopher's formulation, and this guy is called Michael Follony. His approach to knowing, which gives us an account of knowing that makes sense of knowing and coming to know and our ongoing relationship with knowledge. And she proposes this subsidiary focal integration as knowing. Now, it's a little bit of a mouthful, and we don't have time to go into this completely now. Please, please, please stay around and ask questions on it if you'd like to. But essentially, what she says is knowing is like twisting a kaleidoscope. So one moment it's fuzzy, you, know, you can't really make out any pattern. You're just relying on these like blobs of color to kind of guide you. And then as they kind of come together transformatively at an integrative event, we see beyond the colors and to the pattern. We can focus on the bigger picture that's come together for us. The other fundamental uh, pitfall to Descartes was, I think, the fact that he assumed he was able to per uh, per perceive objective reality and truth totally, you know, as though he is on the outside looking in, from the above looking down. And from that vantage point, he can rightly assess and discern truth in toto. And what Meek is suggesting is that knowing is actually instead indwelled. You know, we rely on clues on colors to point us to bigger patterns. You know, we don't have the full picture, but there is a coming to know which isn't accounted for by Descartes. And what is unique about Meek's approach is not only her development of this, but the fundamental starting point for it, which she argues as a Christian, is love. So she says this, she says this starting point is the watershed difference between the knowledge as information approach and the loving to know approach to knowing. Knowing ventures, she argues, begin out of a love or desire. You know, it's what Brian Cox, and um, in a recent symposium a couple of years ago with David Wilkinson, called a love of nature. He said this in uh, that symposium. He said, wonder is noticing that there's something beautiful and worth exploring about nature, and that's the act of wonder. And then you go off and you explore it in whatever way you choose. If you really want to understand how a blade of grass works, the only way you're going to do it is by doing science. You won't do it by contemplating it. But there are responses to the universe, a piece of art as a response, musical response, theology and philosophy are responses. But the initial act of being interested and noticing something that's worth exploring is what I would define as wonder. And that's common. It starts in wonder, not method. It starts with that awe and desire to pursue that sense of wonder, love, that love of nature. And so I think what Meek has presented is not only philosophically robust, but also very human. You know, the place she says that she's found truth, that accounts for coming to know in such a way which unites heads and hearts, values, reason and faith, science and art, thought and emotion, facts and values, is actually the person of Jesus Christ himself. Now this may sound like a bit of an, an odd place um, to introduce him, but she and others have said that such an approach to truth doesn't depersonalize Jesus, it personalizes truth. Truth is personal. And that is why we feel so badly, you know, the lies of friends and governments. 
know, the deceptions and fake, false information, the propaganda and spin. That is why we find it difficult to trust in a post-truth context, because these person's sources have let us down. But what if, what if Jesus is really as he claims, the way, the truth, and the life? And what if knowing him actually enables us to know better, as Meek claims? What if the kind of epistemology that Meek is tapping into is provided by Jesus in such a way that it unites thinking, doing, and loving, but it's ultimately fueled by love? What Meek has set out for us and would make sense of Jesus saying things like, you know, love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your strength, with all your mind, and love your neighbor as yourself. What if this is a better way of knowing, loving with hearts, souls, strengths, minds? And hey, you know, you could be sitting here and you could be thinking, well, you know, isn't this just another post-truth claim? It's an outright lie. You know, that sounds good, so people go for it. Um, G.K. Chesterton once wrote that Christianity satisfies the mythological search for romance by being a story, and the philosophical search for truth by being a true story. With confidence, I can say that Jesus is true because he's entered the broken system and revealed a better way. He is the ultimate outsider and anti-establishment voice, and his isn't a private truth claim brokered in the back corridors of power to maximize personal gain, but his is an open, public claim which is backed up with his own life, his own death and resurrection. And he is there to be tested, scrutinized, and investigated. God cares about truth because he is truth. And and this personal trust and truth in Jesus, I think, is able to make sense of and account for the longings of our elephants and the, the thoughts of our riders and provide us with confidence in our knowing. The, the theologian, late theologian John Stott, uh, once said that Christianity it bypasses the modernist, postmodernist debate by making truth personal. So on your, on your tables, you're probably seeing that there are these little kind of gray, bluish books, and they're a gift from the CUTU, and these are accounts, accounts of, Je- account of Jesus' life, of different kind of people encountering him. And chat with, chat with people, please stay, please chat, we'd love to talk with you. Because it's not that Christianity, and it's not that the Christianity and the Christian ideal has been tried and found wanting. It's actually been found difficult, and so it's been left untried. So, post-truth. Is it possible to know anything with certainty in 2018? Yes, because we can have confidence that Jesus, if he is truth, knows all things certainly, and he invites us as knowers to know the known on our journey of knowing, so that we can understand things truly, but perhaps not as exhaustively as we would like. If Jesus is truth personified, his isn't an arrogant truth claim, a mistaken truth claim, or a claim that undermines other ways of knowing. He provides the basis and fuel for all of them. We don't need something to stand up for, but we need someone to stand on. As Plantinga again wrote, there are many ways of knowing that are consistent with reason, but are not themselves reason. Now, Gove is right. We don't want experts who are lords over us. But what we want is someone who stoops and serves. And that is the kind of truth that Jesus presents us with. Thank you so, so much for listening. Um, thank you. I'll hand it back over.